Texas started to make the visual that they are going to arrest and deport them as their own state, this would inspire acts of courage amongst Republican governors all across the country. This would inspire a movement of states starting to step up and enforce the law, not defy the law, but enforce the law. We did nothing when Illinois, New York, and California, Oregon, and Washington passed sanctuary state measures and sanctuary city measures saying that we are not going to we are not going to comply with ICE. We're going to do things our own way. We're already in that constitutional, that post-constitutional questioning moment. So the real, the open-ended question remains, what are we going to do about it? We'll cut 80. DHS reports they've deported 1.7 thousand Haitians, but they've allowed 3,000 to come into America. Texas allowed this to happen. Texas could have intervened, and they could have usurped federal authority. They should have. Play cut 80. The Department of Homeland Security is telling Fox News it has already deported about 1,700 Haitian migrants. But they're also admitting that more than 3,200 have been released into the United States. But they say they're giving them some special instructions to appear in immigration court. Anybody keeping tabs on those more than 3,000 people? Remember, the Biden administration said it was going to deport all of the migrants living under that bridge in Del Rio, Texas. Of course, that's a lie. We know that's not true. You have pictures of people that have pieces of paper that says, please help us. I do not speak English. What bus do I need to take? Thanks for your help. As they get released into the interior of the United States. Bill Malusian is saying they are releasing entire family units into the United States. Now, some people are saying I'm being too harsh on Texas. Well, Texas, whether they like it or not, are front and center, smack dab in the middle of the great question of our time, which is, who runs the country? What do you do when you start to have a apathetic tyrant, now apathetic when it comes to immigration law, but very engaged when it comes towards forcing vaccinations. What do you do? I know so many amazing patriots in the great state of Texas, and I love Texas, that have been waiting and are willing for this moment. Deputize a citizen force. Put them on the border. Give them handcuffs. Get it done. Sure, that's dramatic. You know what's dramatic? The invasion of the country. We're going to talk more about that. We're going to talk about how the other side has openly admitted that this is about bringing in voters that they want and they like and honestly diminishing and decreasing white demographics in America. We're going to say that part out loud because so many people in the corporate media are afraid to talk about it. Charlie Kirk here. Check out the Charlie Kirk Show podcast. Be right back. All right. My name is Ben Burgess, and this is Give Them an Argument. Our guest tonight is Vivek Chipper, who I honestly think is one of the most valuable Marxist thinkers alive today. Someone who in many ways continues the tradition of people I like to nerd out about, like G.A. Cohen and Eric Olin Wright. Uh, our YouTube manager, Kelly, is off tonight, but we do have some other very cool people here, uh, such as our graphic designer, J. Andrew World. 
uh, the man responsible for all those wonderful thumbnails and our new producer, uh, Jake Appet. Speaking of YouTube, I should say before we get going uh, that uh, as a lot of you know, quite a few GTA YouTube videos are missing in action right now. We're in communication with YouTube to try to figure out what happened. I don't think they did this on purpose. And I'm cautiously optimistic that uh, they'll all be restored before long. But meanwhile, very um, at least all of the uh, public ones can be found on the Give Them an Argument Facebook page. And of course, the episodes, uh, the episodes, not all the live streams, but all the episodes are available on the podcast feed. Some of the patron exclusive stuff, the weekly patron episodes and the patron only post games, uh, those are not anywhere in video form right this second. Uh, you can certainly listen to them all in podcast form on the Patreon. Uh, but worst case scenario, if YouTube doesn't restore everything, uh, we'll, we can just manually re-upload those so patrons will have all of the archive stuff. Um, like I said, though, I'm cautiously optimistic that it won't come to that. Meanwhile, I want to talk about the video that we started with of a uh, friend of the show, Charlie Kirk, uh, advocating some pretty disturbing ideas about immigration. Of course, it's Charlie Kirk. That's expected. It's expected when it comes from Tucker Carlson. What's a little bit more surprising, or maybe it's not surprising to us, but it certainly seems to be more surprising to good liberals who really believed that Biden would be a qualitative improvement over Trump and not just a harm-reducing, softer face of capital, is the scene that played out in Texas uh, that Charlie was referring to at the beginning. Uh, do we have that graphic? So what you know we what everybody saw uh, since the uh, last regular episode uh, that we did were these super disturbing scenes of border patrol agents on horseback with what looked like whips. There was a lot of discussion about whether these were according to Hoyle whips or not. Um, rounding up uh, desperate Haitian migrants who, by the way, um, all of these people have at least a prima facie reasonable case for asylum under international law, given the conditions they're fleeing from. But we saw them being rounded up in scenes that looked like the apes hunting humans, you know, in, in Planet of the Apes, uh, just, just bizarre stuff. And what was even more bizarre uh, was their reaction from uh, the Biden administration and in particular here, uh, White House uh, Press Secretary Jen Psaki, uh, who a lot of liberals have formed a very weird and disturbing parasocial relationship with. They like to talk about, you know, uh, Jen Psaki dropping sake bombs and whatnot. Uh, so uh, do we have that video? So what he has asked all of us to convey clearly to people who are understandably have questions, are passionate, are concerned, as we are about the images that we have seen, is one, we feel those images are horrible and horrific. There is an investigation the president certainly supports overseen by this, the Department of Homeland Security, which he has conveyed will, uh, will happen quickly. I can also convey to you that the secretary also conveyed to civil rights leaders earlier this morning that we would no longer be using horses in Del Rio. Uh, so that is something, a policy change that has been made in response. But separately, all related, it's also important for people to understand what our process and our immigration process is and what the steps are that are taken. 
Yeah. So, guys, thoughts? I, I have so many right now. Um, for, first of all, like it is perfectly legal to walk up to the country, step across our border, and say, "Hey, I want asylum." That is international law. Um, these people deserve due process. There, there are two problems that are happening right now. First of all, is a self-inflicted wound of Title Forty Two, which is the the law that Jen Psaki keeps referring to, which is a Trump era law that Biden has renewed and is fighting for in courts. And the other ones were made in Mexico, which uh, Biden did try to uh, uh, get rid of, and then uh, it was Justice Alito uh, made it a uh, you know made them keep that law. So so we have. Um, you know, kind of conflicting things going on right there. Um, last time I, I've been uh, seeing like uh, they're actually like loading people up on uh, planes and sending back to Haiti. And to the best of my knowledge, zero horses have been deported. Which is a, a you know, if they're going to get rid of the horses, send them back to Haiti. Yeah. Uh, Jake? Um, no, I, I definitely uh, found some dark humor in, 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 in your tweet, um, you know, about about the whole uh, situation. Oh, yeah. Do we... I, could actually, I could actually uh, put it up here. But um, yeah, yeah it so is. For, for people listening to this later in the podcast, it's uh, uh, it's what a shitty Dem politician in a satirical TV show would do. Hey, you don't like the horses? No problem. We can get rid of the horses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It definitely uh, had major beep energy uh, for sure. <laughs> so I don't know if. Uh... Yeah, I mean, it's it's just like everybody is horrified by this, and it it's like an alien trying to understand why humans are horrified by it. Okay, for some reason they don't like the horses. I mean, can we? So we shouldn't be riding horses. Like, should we be rounding up Haitian the Haitian migrants like with chariots, or you know, maybe we could get like a bunch of motorcycles and you know, like uh, Mad Max. Like that'll that'll be better. Like, I mean, if if the horses look bad, you know, change the horses. I think we can all agree that when we abolish ICE and create a border rescue force, we're still going to need horses to patrol the area to rescue people. You know, yeah. The, the the horses are not are not the issue. The uh, the <laughs> issue is uh, this heavy handed militaristic response to round people up uh, in uh, in this violent way and send them back uh, to these horrific conditions that they're fleeing from, rather than following America's uh, legal obligations under various you know treaties and institutions uh, that it's uh, party to, and at least hear out their case for asylum. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. That's the bare minimum we need to be doing is, is to give them a chance. Yeah, exactly. All right. So uh, we were saying that, you know, this, this sort of thing, um, you know, we, we just got it in a, um, I'm trying to think about what to say about this. A, um, you know, in certain ways, a very honest way uh, at the uh, at the beginning from uh, from Charlie Kirk, uh, but Democrats, of course, have been claiming forever now that they are much better on this. Uh, we we heard uh, endlessly, you know, during the last four years about how how horrified they were about kids in cages. Um, you know, there were there are numerous. Um, statements from Joe Biden and many other Democrats, some of whom are now in his administration, about how 
they support a much more humane immigration policy. And in particular, they support a pathway to citizenship for uh, undocumented workers who are already here and have been here for a while and uh, are, are working you know, low-wage jobs, often in really bad conditions, uh, of course, because they are undocumented. So it makes it that much harder to do things like join a union uh, or um, or take legal action you know, against employers who violate various labor laws because obviously they are terrified of being deported if they try to do any of those things. And Democrats have said they would change that. Now, path to citizenship is vague. Uh, my view is that the path should be about as, you know, about as long as the path to getting a public library card uh, after you move to a new city. Uh, but even a much longer path uh, would be better than nothing. And lo and behold, when the three and a half trillion dollar, you know, infrastructure bill came up, uh, which is the big chance for Democrats to actually do domestic social policy right now, because because of the filibuster and because using the budget reconciliation process is the only path uh, that uh, is available under the current absurd Senate rules, which by the way, uh, you know, this, these are not the filibuster, you know, people think that this is like established in the constitution or something. Um, the filibuster is, is not established in any law. It's, it's just Senate, the Senate rules. The Senate could change its rules literally whenever. Um, but under those absurd Senate rules uh, that certainly Democrats like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, you know, aren't uh, going to go along with changing and probably a lot of other Democrats too. They're letting Manchin and Sinema take the heat for that. Uh, you need uh, this supermajority threshold, which Democrats don't have the votes for uh, to get anything through unless you use this loophole uh, for the budget reconciliation process. Uh, and so the uh, the Democrats were going to put some kind of pathway to citizenship provision in the big reconciliation bill, which is, again, this bill right now is the big chance for Democrats to do anything domestically, you know, for the foreseeable while, you know, that's, that's not just bipartisan anodyne stuff. Uh, and then they said they couldn't because the parliamentarian told them not to. Uh, so I have an article about this in uh, Jacobin. Uh, it's a um, uh, it's called It's Really Not That Hard, Just Ignore the Senate Parliamentarian. And part of what I get into in the article is that this is, again, something that people talk about as if, well, the Senate parliamentarian gets to decide what violates the rules and what doesn't is some sacred American institution that, um, you know, Thomas Jefferson, you know, and uh, and John Adams and, you know, like got, uh, you know, got together on and, you know, and, and did like a, you know, pricked their their palms. They could do a blood oath about how, you know, there's going to be a Senate parliamentarian forever. And there's not. None of that is right. The Senate parliamentarian is an institution that's only existed since 1935. Uh, that was the first time the Senate hired a parliamentarian to the job of the parliamentarian is to give them advice about um, about how to interpret their own rules because those rules got so big and complicated. 
But this is a staffer. So to review the situation, the filibuster itself is something that not only is not like in the constitution somewhere, uh, you know, the, the framers, and I'm, I'm not a big fan of the, you know, of the slave owners, bankers and bastards, you know, who, who got together to write the constitution. But, you know, if we're going to play that game, uh, Hamilton and Madison and those guys made it very clear that they did not want any kind of uh, supermajority threshold uh, for uh, for Senate votes. I talk about this in an article I wrote earlier this year uh, for Jack Ben called it's Long Past Time to Abolish the Filibuster, where I talk about how usually when people hear about the filibuster, what they're imagining is like Mr. Smith goes to Washington, you know, you give like a 72-hour speech uh, to stop something from going through, which kind of was once what it was, uh, although a more historically realistic version of Mr. Smith goes to Washington would have him be a Southern Senator who's filibustering to stop some like mild civil rights law from going through. Cause that's most of what the filibuster was, was used for in that era. Uh, but now literally all you have to do is like a staffer who works for a Senator can like send an email saying, Oh yeah, my Senator wants to filibuster this. And there's okay. Noted. Right. And that's it. That's the whole process. It's the whole thing. Um, you don't have to talk. Uh, you just have to register it. So essentially, again, it means that anything that uh, that any senator objects to has supermajority threshold. Um, it's, uh, and that's something, again, actually the early rules of the Senate for the first couple decades, the institution existed. Uh, had something called the, the final question rule that made it explicit that you could not, um, uh, that, that a minority could not stop something from going through, that if you kept talking and it seemed like the substantive discussion was over and you were just trying to stop something from being voted on, you know, they could stop that with the final question rule that was act, you know, not even intentionally, um, taken out, but there was like a big overhaul of the rules by, uh, Aaron Burr, weirdly enough, uh, that, um, accidentally created the loophole that allowed for a filibuster because uh, it eliminated the final question rule because it was eliminating like 100 rules at once. And even so, it wasn't until decades later when Southern slaveocrats realized that they could exploit this loophole. And then the actual, like the idea of the budget reconciliation process uh, as the loophole to the filibuster being something you could only use when there's more than incidental budgetary consequences. That's the phrase. That's something called the bird rule. Again, it's not in the law anywhere. It's a Senate rule they could get rid of whenever they wanted to. Uh, and, um, and that's something that uh, the, the big takeaway here is they could interpret that however the hell they want. There is no law. There isn't even anything in the Senate rules that says what that means. It's just this incredibly vague phrase, more than incidental consequences for the budget. So what's more than, more than incidental? Well, you'd think that a pathway to citizenship for millions of immigrants would be have more than incidental budgetary consequences. Those people are going to be paying taxes. They're going to be getting Social Security, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But... The parliamentarian said no, and 
they're pretending that this means that that's just it, that there's nothing that you can do, that they are powerless in the face of the mighty parliamentarian. Um, now, one of the uh, best Congress people, uh, Ilhan Omar, had a uh, tweet about this uh, where, uh, where she says, uh, this ruling by the parliamentarian is only a recommendation. Senator Schumer in the White House can and should ignore it. We can't miss this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do the right thing. Uh, and uh, right-wing blowhard Sean Hannity responded uh, by asking, what constitution? Right, As if Ilhan Omar was suggesting that the uh, Senate, uh, that uh, Chuck Schumer and the White House do something that violated the constitution. But thing is, we can just look. Don't take my word for it. The Office of Congressional Research uh, did a report in 2018. They said, and I quote, as a staff official, neither parliamentarian is empowered to make decisions that are binding on the House or the Senate. The parliamentarians and their deputies or assistants can all only offer advice that the presiding representative or senator may accept or reject. So, to be clear, this is a staffer who, according to the Office of Congressional Research, has no power to do anything but issue recommendations. In 2001, Trent Lott, as the uh, majority leader, fired a Senate parliamentarian who was, uh, you know, whose advice he annoyed him. There are many examples of vice presidents, not many, but there are several examples of vice presidents uh, since 1935 when they started to, uh, when they started having a parliamentarian for the first time. Uh, vice president is the presiding officer of the Senate. There are several examples of vice presidents just saying no. Uh, thank you for the advice, but no. They could do this, and I don't know. I, I, I guess the point is just, like, don't fall for this. Like, this, this like, stupid game where, you know, you say, oh, sorry, I, nothing I can do. The parliamentarian says that I can't. Like, it's a, you know, it's an insult to everybody's intelligence. If you just don't want it, or if they just don't want it enough to have a big fight about it, fine. But don't pretend that the parliamentarian made them. And, and what's funny to me is, like, I don't really understand who the Democrats are, are targeting with this kind of messaging. You know what I'm saying? Like, this idea of, oh, well, you know what? It's the parliamentarian. Like, how many people really are going to are gonna buy that? Like, maybe, like, 1,500 people who are all use Twitter too much and, you know, reply <laughs> sake bomb, you know, on, on, on White House briefings. I just don't understand where this, um, you know, what the strategy even really is. Maybe someone smarter than me could, could tell me what they're, what they're aiming for. So they could sleep at night. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's a farce. Um, the, it's, not, it's just not true as a matter of law. You know, you can claim that it's the norms, you know, that it's really important to respect tradition. But, like, the precedent has been set a bunch of times that you could ignore or fire the Senate parliamentarian. Again, it's a staffer they hired, uh, and yeah, I absolutely agree with you, Jake. It uh, it doesn't even it doesn't even make sense as as a political strategy. This is just like the the Democrats uh, always have to do everything in this way that feels clever to them, but uh, but doesn't make you know. But like 
it's not even that they're being cynical, but at least like playing power politics. It's just something that like, you know, would uh, would make like Rachel Maddow viewers, I guess, maybe say like, oh, oh that's that's, you know, that's that's good. You know, they're, they're really doing something clever there. Like, oh, well, you know, if we appoint Merrick Garland, who Republicans have praised many times, they'll have to confirm him. Uh, so so we tricked them, you know, so um, the uh, the football, you know, like is not uh, is not going to not be taken away this time. So. All right. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks, guys. Uh, thank you, Andy. I will see you in the post game. Uh, but meanwhile, I uh, want to uh, talk about another uh, friend of the show, because uh, when we were talking about the parliamentarian, uh, it said that the parliamentarian just said no pathway to citizenship. That's not more than incidental budgetary consequences. Several months back, uh, the uh, the parliamentarian said no uh, no minimum wage increase. That's not even a more than incidental budgetary consequence. And I was thinking about this, and that reminded me of something really striking, because when we watched that Charlie Kirk clip at the beginning, Charlie Kirk is at least in his current incarnation is basically a tucker carlson republican that's that's the uh, that's the audience he's speaking to that's the language he's speaking uh the the thing that charlie said about the immigrants uh the migrants you know the asylum seekers in texas is pretty much what um it's pretty much what uh uh what tucker carlson said and the way that Tucker Carlson Republicans present themselves is all about uh, claiming to be populists, that they're not like the old corporate Republicans. You know, these these are these are populist Republicans who really want to help, you know, little people and, you know, in the Rust Belt uh, and and hate the elites. And so you think at least on that minimum wage issue. That would you know, even if they have horrible reactionary positions on minimum wage, you'd think that on, uh, on immigration, you'd think they'd at least support raising the minimum wage, right? All right, going to take a big sip of coffee and then watch uh, this clip from back when that earlier intervention of the parliamentarian was about to happen and uh, Biden uh, was saying he wanted to raise the minimum wage. Joe Biden is pushing to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. That may help some of the people who get raised wages. It will definitely hurt others. According to the Congressional Budget Office, a $15 minimum wage would eliminate almost a million and a half jobs and increase the federal deficit dramatically. Neil Patel has thought a lot about this topic. He wrote a column about it for the Boston Herald. He's the publisher of The Daily Caller. He joins us tonight to assess. Neil, thanks a lot for coming on. So economic arguments aside, it does seem like the minimum wage is, is popular in general with the public, and this is likely to happen, given who controls Congress. Given that, what's the wise way, do you think, to raise the minimum wage? Tucker, uh, thanks for having me. If, if you're going to have a minimum wage, it doesn't make any sense to have it the same in every location in America. It costs more than twice as much to live in Manhattan as it does in a small town in Kansas. And there's, there's no earthly reason both those places should have the same minimum wage. Uh, similarly, it doesn't make any sense to have the same minimum wage for huge multinational companies with thousands of employees 
uh, and billions of dollars in profits as it does for, say, the deli on the corner uh, of your block uh, at home. The deli owner's probably working in his own store. He may want a few hours off in the afternoon and bring in a high school kid. The concept of a, the left's concept of a liv livable wage, I think it, it, it's much easier to apply that to a Walmart or a Target uh, than it is to the deli guy. And yet we don't. We have one minimum wage applying in every place for every business. It makes zero sense. Could, could it have something to do with who donates to which political party? I mean, it seems like some of these big businesses would actually be in favor of a higher minimum wage if they thought it would drive their competitors out of business. So the huge multinational companies that dominate Washington and, and these policy debates are actually mostly for the minimum wage increase. Uh, the retailers, the big re retailers like Target, Walmart, Amazon, they're definitely in for it. They're publicly in favor of it. And it's because it crushes their small business competitors. They can afford it. They're already mostly paying a $15 an hour wage. Uh, and right. they know that the, the ones they compete with, these small town businesses, can't afford it. So uh, that's another reason why, you know, why doesn't Washington call their bluff? How about $20 or more on huge multinationals, <laughs> but 10 or less on the small business in the corner? I mean... This is pretty much the last thing after a year of COVID and riots that small businesses need right now, is it not? It's the last thing small businesses need. It's the last thing our country needs. I don't know if you saw the stats today. 60% of the people involved in the Capitol Hill riots had gone through extreme economic hardship recently, meaning bankruptcies, massive credit, layoffs. So the problems we're having in our economy, especially in the small business sector, where Small businesses just lost 30% of their revenue this year, and 30% of all small businesses just closed down. Washington needs to start looking at this and coming up with more innovative policies than ones that only are aligned with the big business agenda. It's such a smart point that I've heard from nobody else. $30 minimum wage for Amazon warehouse workers. No minimum wage for the dry cleaner on your block. I love that. Neil Patel, I appreciate your coming on tonight. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so what really hits me about this beyond the specific argument he's making in the video is that this is a kind of pseudo populist argument for Jake, what's the, uh, you know, what's, what's the, uh, what's the upshot here? Oh, uh, you're muted, Jake. Said I wasn't I wasn't ready for uh, the pop quiz, but my guess is that uh, they don't really want to do it at all. <laughs> yeah, they don't really want to do it at all. I mean, like the this is a pseudo populist argument against raising the minimum wage. When at the end of the day, they say, "Oh, we well, we'd be okay with raising it at a few giant corporations," but basically, we want um, any business that might be owned by someone that we see as part of our our base to be able to pay people like a dollar an hour, whatever, nothing. Uh, and so I think this is what you always see with these guys. And it's a really simple point, but I think it's one that's worth hammering on again and again and again. I mean, this is why um, I wanted to debate, you know, Charlie Kirk in the first place uh, to just make this really simple point to anybody who's winnable in his audience that when People like him, these kinds of Tucker Carlson Republicans claim 
that they're you know not like republicans they're populists if they want to uh if they want to brutalize immigrants it's because they at least care about the native born working class in certain parts uh of the uh of the country uh and that and that this is just nonsense that every single time uh they that like there's actually a meaningful test of that claim you know they fail the test well gosh if these were really economic populists who at least wanted to help the native born working class not the you know immigrant working class but at least the native born working class shouldn't they support so raise the minimum wage somehow they don't and they've got a populist flavored reason for saying no shouldn't they support giving everybody health care well well apparently not of a populist reason for not doing it or more likely they actually don't even have that they just want to avoid the subject like steve bannon did uh when uh anna and dasha interviewed him on red scare and he spent like 10 minutes being very uncomfortable about the topic when they started asking him if you're such a populist why don't you support medicare for all seems like a really good question well uh our uh our guest uh is somebody who has uh has written about some of this stuff uh he uh, he wrote an article that was published in jacobin i think in tribute earlier uh called conservatism is morally bankrupt uh and he's somebody i'm very excited for a variety of reasons to talk to and that is vic chibber all right all right you are muted vic now now you're good okay all right good to be here ben yeah it's good uh it's good uh, good to have you uh have have really enjoyed quite a bit of your work and so uh it is uh it's good to talk to you so you want to start off by talking a little bit about that that article uh conservatism is morally bankrupt sure um it was an article that was written originally for the tribune in england and the idea was to try to engage some of the arguments that conservatism usually uh puts forward uh, in defense of itself and in criticism of the left the main such argument, uh, well, there are a couple of them. One is that the left is contemptuous of community and tradition. Um, and then uh, the second one in defense of conservatism is that the conservatism defends those very things that the left traduces. And um, what I wanted to try to make clear in that argument was that it's true that there are some strains within the left that do seem overly iconoclastic and, and detached from community and from tradition. Uh, but that is not, in fact, the history of the left. And it, the, if anything, and this is the really important point, it is the conservative movement, the contemporary right, that upholds the power of the individual over the community and not vice versa. And the reason is simple. Uh, conservatism today is tied to the, the defense of capital and the defense of property. And in capitalism, what the ownership uh, productive assets gives you as an individual is an untrammeled power over the lives of hundreds, thousands, even millions of people. And what is that if it is not the defense of the most extreme kind of individualism? So yeah, the argument is basically saying that the left has always, in fact, defended a kind of community while criticizing other kinds of community. 
the right for itself does defend certain kinds of community norms, and which are norms attached to the defense of power. But above all, the right is committed to the defense of the right of sovereign individuals, that is, owners of property over the lives of others. And the left has therefore nothing to fear in defending its record on those very issues that the right trots out to criticize it. Yeah, and I mean, in particular, one of the things that those the right of individuals to control the means of production means in practice uh, is that uh, if you own a factory and there are numerous people who have roots in a community who, who work for you and have uh, and you know their their families live there, etc., you can uh, dramatically disrupt all of that uh, by by you know by moving it uh, by moving it somewhere else which is not exactly a fanciful hypothetical example yeah and conversely what the left has always done is respected not just certain traditions but also certain forms of community so first of all the left has always respected the traditions of struggle and the traditions of uh, fighting for individual autonomy and individual rights, against the power of exploiting classes and dominant classes. But also, I should point out, everything that we today associate with liberal rights were achievements of the left. Now, this is something that should be stressed in the contemporary left, where liberal is taken to be a swear word. And -hmm. there are certain kinds of what we call liberal politics today that should be opposed. And in colloquialisms, we do use the term liberal to contrast it from socialism. But it's important to understand that insofar as the rights for voting, the rights of, uh, of uh, di- uh, uh, trial by jury, the right for minorities to have equal citizenship, the right for women to be present in the political nation, all of these things, insofar as they're valued, they were all achievements that socialists fought for and l- are largely responsible for. Now, if that's true, then what socialism amounts to is the deepening of liberal rights, the deepening of liberal traditions not their rejection. This is an unfortunate hangover from the days of Lenin and Stalin, that liberal rights are simply a hoax. They're not actually real. They're very real, and they need to be defended. And now that needs to be stressed on today's left, where liberal is used as a swear word. But insofar as those traditions are real and they need to be defended, we should see ourselves as extending that tradition, not as uh, overturning it. So that's one tradition that we uphold. And the second, of course, is the tradition of struggle against capital, against all forms of domination. When it comes to community, the left upholds community in that it is impossible to have collective action without some sort of community feeling, some sort of solidaristic um, uh, ethos. And that's a kind of community. Where it's absent, the left generates it anew. It creates it anew. And where it's already present, we try to build on it. So neither community nor tradition are alien to the left. Yeah, I really like the point about liberal rights. It seems to me that the word liberal is used in, I don't know, maybe like three or four senses. One of them is to indicate a portion of the political spectrum that's like roughly to the right of conservative, to the left of conservatism, to the right of social democracy. Uh, and, And that's, I think what, you know, I hope people are usually thinking of when they kind of use liberal as a swear word uh, is, is, is that, uh, but then it also means just thinking that liberal rights are, are really important uh, that, you know, free speech and, you know, and, and all of that, uh, which I think you can, you know, I mean, there's a, 
you know, there's a forum of, you know, there certainly have been forums of socialism or whatever you want to call those societies that, that disregarded that. But uh, you could argue that insofar as the point of socialism is to empower uh, ordinary people to run society for themselves, that that's just incompatible with that. You know, you're not going to have like meaningful democracy uh, extended to the economy if people are worried that if they say the wrong thing, uh, you know, they're, they're going to be they're going to be arrested. And then, then there's maybe uh, philosophical liberalism, uh, which could either be understood in a really narrow way as like what John Locke thought or something like that. And that's probably going to be incompatible with socialism in various ways. But then it could also be understood in a broader way as just some sort of view that um, all humans are morally equal and deserve the same rights or something like that, which not only seems compatible with socialism, but it seems hard to say why somebody would be a socialist if they didn't believe that. Yeah, in fact, I believe that that view that of the, about the moral equality of individuals is profoundly radical, and it forms the basis on which you object to capitalism in the first place. So if you uphold that view, and it's hard to see how any moral person would not. I mean, if, if you think blacks and whites deserve the same rights, you're saying blacks are of equal moral worth as whites. And if you think that brown people deserve not to be colonized, you think that they are of equal moral worth as whites. If you actually do believe that and uphold that, then you also should believe that they should not be subject to the arbitrary whims of their employers. They should not be consigned to a life of insecurity and a life of precarity. They deserve certain basic amenities, which are essential for human flourishing. All those things, all those views emanate and are founded upon a commitment to the moral equality of individuals. And that commitment, I mean, it's, if you really want to see the full explication of that view, it's in Kant, it's in Rousseau, and that's the tradition that socialists and Marxists are building on. Unfortunately, the detour through Bolshevism and then through structuralism and post-structuralism and anti-humanism has buried this view, and if the left is ever going to get anywhere, it's going to have to resuscitate. Yeah, so I, I am interested in hearing a little bit more about that last part. Like, I, I mean, I, I kind of get how, uh, you know, the detour through Stalinism undermines that but uh but what's what's the what's the connection with structuralism and post-structuralism well uh, in a colloquial expression you know structuralism was what it was the death of the individual right the death of the subject which meant it's structures that do all the work in human history and it's structures through which meaning is generated now in the case of structural linguistics it, it's the sasur's theory of uh how meaning is generated through the structure of language in Derrida is how discourse is generated through the structure of discursive forms. In Foucault, it's the episteme which generates subjecthood and subjectivity, et cetera, et cetera. The, the structure predates the individual. Now, in a very basic analytical sense, that's there's something to that, in that it's lined up against the view that individuals can do whatever they want, whenever they want. And it's a kind of voluntarism which says, look, individuals are placed in certain social situations certain social constraints, those constraints limit the options open to them. So if you want to understand why people do what they do, why they can't do certain things, you've got to look to the structures. That's absolutely true. But what structuralism and post-structuralism did was something quite beyond that. They took the extra step of saying that if the structures generate the logic that the individuals follow, or in the case of Althusser, the individuals end up being simply the what Althusser called the bearers of the structures. That is to say, the individuals are generated in order to reproduce the structures. Now, what that means, therefore, is that 
the basis of individual agency, which is the biological integrity of the individual, his or her rationality, their needs, their desires, all of those are dissolved into the structures themselves. And it's after that then, that it becomes very hard to talk about things like human rights. So it becomes very hard to talk about things like human needs and because human needs are a fiction because it, it ignores the fact that all needs are socially constructed, i.e. constructed by the circumstances, constructed by the culture, et cetera. So cultures become the key to understanding the individual rather than individual choices, individual agencies being the basis on which cultures are constructed. It's a very, it ends up, it sounds very rooted in the Marxist tradition, but it's really not. It has nothing to do with it. It ends up being an extremely authoritarian ideology in which individuals are simply dissolved. That has really no place in a socialist tradition where the goal of, uh, at the end is individual flourishing, not the dissolution of the individual in some sort of community project. Yeah, I mean, so so Marx talks in the, Communi in the, the Communist Manifesto about the free development of each, uh, you know, being dependent on on the free development of all, and you know, the idea that the the ultimate point of the socialist project. I mean, that in, in a way, this kind of gets back to what you were saying about uh, conservatism at at the beginning. That uh, that you know, the the conservative you know critique of liberalism, even certainly the left, is that it's all about uh, dissolving uh, community and, and and tradition. And there might be certain senses in which, you know, communities do bad things, they're bad traditions, you know, that, uh, that deserve, you know, that maybe, that maybe deserve to be dissolved. Uh, but uh, the obvious thing that always, always seemed really strange to me was people who on the one hand, spend all this time worrying about the dissolution of community and tradition, and on the other hand, celebrate untrammeled markets. And it seems like, well, if your ideal is that everybody has, I don't know, big nuclear families, and they go to they go to a neighborhood church, and you know, and and they have all sorts of communal connections and all that stuff. Uh, not necessarily how I want to live my life, but that's not neither here nor there, you know, for the for the point. Um, then. Okay, why is it that those things have gone away as much as they have? It's not really because of feminism or gay rights or anything like that. It's it's really because of the the economic pressures of an incredibly atomized society where people are stressed out and have to move around for work and you know and and, and all that. And it seems like at best the point of a left economic project is to give people the freedom and practice to live like that if they want to live in, you know, polyamorous Wiccan communities if they want to, that's fine too. Uh, but at any rate, to, you know, to make these decisions uh, without uh, larger economic forces forcing their hand. Yeah, I should say though, Ben, I, I don't think, it, it's not quite the case that people um, move away from religious institutions um, because of the insecurity in their lives. The, it's interesting that the country with the greatest amount of insecurity in the advanced capitalist world has also the greatest amount of religious participation mm -hmm. and religiosity, and that's the United States. And where you've seen the secularization of social life proceed the farthest is where people have a lot of security. I think those are important points to note because it, it also alerts us to another dimension of this process, which is that one reason why people cling to things like the church and cling to things like their uh, ethnic groups and things like that 
is that in a situation of desperation where the market is tearing them apart, ethnic groups and kinship groups is where they find some kind of social insurance for themselves, where they find some kind of social support where it's nowhere else to be found. And so they value those attachments in a way that they otherwise wouldn't. And churches or religious institutions writ large are a place where they find some kind of regular community participation in something which other uh, I know, which has been otherwise torn apart by the market because of the very same itinerance and the very same insecurity that you're talking about. And the reason it's important to understand this, there is a weakness in the left tradition in educated circles, people who come from university backgrounds and from urban areas to heap contempt on, or to at least look with great suspicion of these sorts of attachments as a kind of backwardness. And that has a very profoundly negative effect on organizing because that attitude, that attitude of derision and condescension is something that people pick up very easily and they mm -hmm. under, they, they um, intuit it very easily, but they're from working class backgrounds. And it gets in the way of people on the left being able to organize them. It's important to understand that all over the history of the first part of the 20th century, the left espoused atheism, but it respected religious practice. It took part in church gatherings. It went to people's temples. It went to people's mosques. It urged them to ignore the mullahs, to ignore the priests. It urged them to not be beholden to them, but it respected the fact that they were in it. That needs to be revived. So, because if there's one characteristic of the American left today, it is a at best a condescending attitude towards working people and their attachments, whatever they might be. And all too often it's a derision. What that means simply is that the right, the working class and working people become much more attracted to the right who come to them and says, this is exactly what the left is trying to take away. This is what it's gonna destroy. And it's important to understand that that sharp derision that we sometimes see is not only a mistake, but it's a departure from the practice of socialists across the 20th century. Yeah, so it seems like what you're saying about that ties into a much bigger concern about, you know, the social basis of the left, uh, that, you know, the, you know, successful socialist movements uh, in, you know, certainly the early 20th century, been, you know, later than the early 20th century, uh, you know, were based in a organized working class. You know, there were, there were certainly intellectuals in those movements, but the, uh, but, uh, but that was the, the bulk of, uh, of their base. Whereas uh, now, even outside of a country like the United States, uh, where things are, you know, particularly dismal, you know, for, for, uh, for organized, uh, organized socialist activity. But I mean, even, even like in Germany, you know, they just had an election and, uh, and it seems like, you know, Dilinka, which, which is the, uh, the, the left of the mainstream social democratic party, uh, like from what, you know, can kind of tell from reading the tea leaves from, from this election result, uh, it seems like that, effort even there is is very you know de-aligned from uh from that that traditional class you know class base that they're that they're uh just kind of competing with you know with with you know main you know with uh mainstream you know liberal leftish parties for you know the same middle class votes 
It's very much uh, true. Um, the findings of Thomas Piketty and his um, co-authors in a book that's coming out in November, but also it's there in his book, Capital Ideology. What Piketty has found is this, this pervasive phenomenon, which is that across the advanced capitalist world, what used to be social democratic parties, rather the social democratic parties today are overwhelmingly drawing their votes from educated, college educated classes and from urban middle classes, not from working classes. Now, how and why that happened is an interesting question. It has to be researched. And I think on the left, it, they've been very, very late. We've been very, very late in recognizing it. And so as a, the research program hasn't yet been generated, but it's quite clear whether it's Germany or the United States, which was al always barely a social democracy, uh, England, France, the left parties are exactly, as you say, vying for middle-class votes much more than they are for working-class votes. Now, why and how that's so, it needs to be investigated, but it, it should be clear, if that being the case, it is no mystery why all these left parties have now become softer versions of the pro-market parties that you see in the mainstream, because their social base is a social base for whom uh, the traditional concerns of working class parties are no longer very pressing. Concerns for, for jobs, for universal healthcare, uh, for transportation, for public housing and all that, these are just not their concerns. And so the party's platforms are shifting away from these things, which means that the working class in all these countries is finding that the left parties have really nothing to offer them, nothing to say. The left parties in turn are taking up issues that educated middle-class people find are much more pressing, like the social liberalism, the culture wars, the anti-discrimination stuff, uh, the, the stuff around um, uh, the, uh, cultural and social rights. There, it's, a, it's a fact which portends very, very, uh, I think, ill for left politics, left electoral politics in the near run. Yeah, so certainly those items that you just listed off aren't... Uh aren't all the same, you know, in, in what attitude, you know, we should, we should have, uh, have towards them that, you know, anti-discrimination is certainly a sort of baseline, uh, of any kind of, you know, worthwhile left project, but, uh, but clearly it, it's also really bad, uh, if we spend, too much of our time, you know, thinking and, and talking and, and certainly in the context of an election talking about uh, culture war uh, issues, among other things. I mean, just mathematically, like certainly the American context, uh, you know, cultural issues tend to be, if not exactly 50-50, at least to, to divide people. And in fact, to divide people's material interests should uh, align them with the left program. Uh, in, you know, in like groups where there are significant numbers on both sides, whereas something like um, should rich people be taxed more, you know, when their polls, when their polls on that, you know, in the United States, should rich people be taxed more? That's, you know, that's two thirds. Yeah, exactly. But the deeper problem here is not just the messaging. It's that the left is now deploying the same instruments to reach their electorate as the right is, which is opinion polls, consultants, the mass media. Whereas traditionally, it was an anchor, a physical anchor in working class neighborhoods and workplaces through which they communicated. And in that game, 
that game of trying to reach the masses with an appropriate message through the mass media, the left loses. It will always lose. It will never win that game. Unless, the, unless you go back and start rebuilding in the class, the media is always going to paint you as weirdos, nutjobs, as unrealistic, as dreamers, but out of touch with reality, as insensitive to this, that, or the other aspect of culture. And my firm belief is that you're just not going to win that game. Yeah, so I do want to maybe pivot to talking about what the, you know, hypothetically at least the uh, the winning game looks like. You you talked about, and I know we're back to messaging here, but you know, you talked about uh, healthcare, education, transportation. You know, you you kind of rattled off a uh, a few things like this, and I've heard you say in other contexts that uh, that you think that the sort of primary um like certainly normative impulse you know behind any kind of socialist project is uh an attempt to at least severely influence severely restrict the uh the the dominance of markets over uh over society i, I think uh i think this might be i think like eric old right somewhere talks about like you know you like thinking that the sort of two like if you want to divide it up in a slightly more fine-grained way than that, right? The sort of two big impulses are thinking that we shouldn't have to rely on markets to to meet our basic needs, and that uh, people shouldn't have to be, you know, subordinated in their power relations to other people because of labor markets. Yeah, uh, th that's the essence of it. If you don't do that, you're not a socialist. Simple as that. And that that is the one place where what we today call liberals—that's where they've stopped. Liberals, as long as the left was around to push them, liberal intellectuals, liberal political parties came to some degree of uh, market constraints, espousing and pushing for constraining the market in some way. But once the left uh, weakened to the point where it was no longer a factor, you see liberalism becoming what it is today, which is an ideology of upwardly people who are successful in the market and who want to see the market do better for them. So in my mind, if you're calling yourself a socialist organization or even a progressive organization, it starts with your attitude towards the market and towards the power that market dependence gives, endows some people with over the lives of other people. So th this is where liberalism becomes kind of contradictory. On the one hand, you, you uphold the moral equality of individuals. At the same time, you refuse to recognize how dependence on the market runs over and undermines the moral equality of individuals. So ironically, the the historic achievement, one of the achievements of the left was that it ended up civilizing liberals. And today with the left in retreat, you're seeing liberals become a tiny, narrow little interest group um, because it represents the top 20% of the population and no one else. Yeah, I mean, I guess in a way, what you're talking about, uh, you know, reminds me of of the point that you know you sometimes see libertarians make when they say, uh, "Oh, you know, we're the real liberals because because uh, kind of mainstream left liberals who believe in things like you know New Deal programs, or whatever, are uh, you know like this. This is just a kind of like soft version of of, of social democracy." And there's a depending on what you mean by liberalism, there's a strange sense in which in which you are right because the you know in which they're right to say that because 
uh, the original version of liberalism in the political spectrum sense of liberalism uh, is going to be uh, much more hostile towards uh, state intervention to try to, you know, limit or even roll back parts of the influence of human markets over society in order to protect people uh, in the way that uh, even, you know, even even a sort of limited kind of proto-social democracy like, you know, like the New Deal or the Great Society in the United States is trying to some extent do. And that's not going to happen without, uh, you know, without some kind of serious threat uh, from, you know, from their left flank. I mean, like sometimes I think socialists overstate the point and say, like, oh, if if FDR hadn't done the New Deal, there would have been a communist revolution or something. And I don't think that's true. But it is at least true that there was that there was much more pressure, at least much more concern about some kind of left left alternative gaining at least more traction at that time. Look, there there were 50 years of liberal politics and even some liberal parties before the modern left was born in the 1880s. Just look at the track record of those liberal parties. There was not any inkling of economic reform, social reform, social democracy. There, What there was was a kind of an openness to charity towards the poor. So letting markets do their work, but then trying to make up for the people who fall through the cracks, as it were. The idea was that markets are themselves okay, but there are certain extremes that we need to blunt, you know, the, the edges of those extremes. But the Liberal Party in England, which comes up around the around mid-century, didn't have any progressive element within it. The Liberals in Germany never did. It was the birth of the labor movement that ends up pushing them towards the left. Uh, that was true then. And now I've been thinking about this a lot lately, about what the hell happened to American liberals? You've gone from the great society in the 1960s and the calls for urban renewal and jobs programs and all these things which liberals were pushing for 50 years ago to now self-styled liberals saying, well, all of these things are either impossible or they're actually ways of cementing white supremacy or cementing uh, patriarchy or something. It's, it's an astounding turnaround in liberal ideology where it is now lined up squarely against the basic needs of working people, whether they're black, brown, or white. It's an amazing moral degeneration, degeneration. And I think it has everything to do with the fact that the brief period during which liberal intellectuals and liberal philosophers came to recognize the humanity of the poor, that brief period was the period when the left forced them to do so. Otherwise, they're going back to being attachments to the power centers, which is where we are today. Yeah. So I, I think one one way maybe to uh, to like kind of wrap up by talking a, a little bit about this would be to, to go back to some of what you're saying earlier about structuralism and relate that to some of what you're saying now, because if we're talking about, you know, why these ideological shifts happen uh, and, you know, you're certainly talking about those in relation to constellations of class forces. But I mean, I, I think some of what you said about, you know, structures and individuals earlier uh, could, you know, I, I could see somebody hearing all that and being like, well, hold on, but what about like the, uh, you know, the Marxist theory of history, which is, you know, which is all about um, the, you know, the productive forces of society, you know, 
advancing and this giving rise to uh, certain kinds of you know relations of production, economic structures, and that what goes on in the ideological superstructure, you know, comes comes out of that, you know, and and isn't uh, a an analysis uh, in which uh, this these these sorts, you know, maybe not the same structures, but you know, but some sort of uh, some sort of larger structures are dictating all these outcomes. And I, I wanted to raise this because I mean I've I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I mean I'm getting ready to teach a class on the G.A. Cohen book on Marx's theory of history, but also, also I know you, you wrote an essay about this, I think called uh, what is living and what is dead in, in the Marxist theory of history. So, yeah. so I mean, what would be the sort of um, elevator pitch version of that? I mean, what what is what is living and what's dead in your view in the Marxist theory of history? Well, let, let's take this back to what you said about the individual and structures. Suppose you, um, are committed to the cl classical Marxist view about how history evolves, which is that history evolves through the propulsive force of, technolo of technological advances, productivity gains across history. And social structures, class structures come and go to the extent that they are appropriate to the further development of the productive forces when they become, as, it, as Marx said, fetters or uh, impediments to the further development of productivity, class structures fall into crisis, uh, they uh, become archaic, uh, and they are cast aside in favor of new class structures, which then continue the forward march of productivity. So Rome fell when, when it no longer improved the productive forces. Feudalism came around because it was better for the productive forces. Feudalism is cast aside when it becomes a constraint on the productive forces, et cetera, et cetera. Suppose you believe that, as Cohen does. Belief in that argument does not in any way dissolve the importance of individual agency, nor does a criticism of that argument, and what I am a critic of that argument, I don't think it's plausible, but not because it dissolves individual agency. So on the part of Gerald Cohen, now we're getting kind of academic here, so some people may or, or may not be interested in this. But in Cohen's argument, he's it's quite okay, clear. Uh, okay. In, in Cohen's argument, he's quite clear that um, the bedrock on which the selection for pr production relations rests is individual rationality, the rationality of individual actors. And the reason why certain production relations or class structures are cast aside is because rationally motivated individuals find that their welfare is no longer improving through those class structures. Those rationally motivated individuals then find through hook or crook through some means, and Cohen says, we don't have to, we can do a hand wave and say some such means will come around because people are reasonable and they're smart and they'll find some way to do it. Through some fashion, they cast aside those old production relations and cobble together new ones. That's all through individuals not being the product of production relations, not being simply a reflex to what the structures want, but instead upholding those structures and reproducing them only so long as those structures do the work that the individuals want them to do, which is improve their welfare. So whether or not you buy that argument, it doesn't require dissolving individual agency or refusing to recognize individual agency. My view, you know, people can take a look at the article if they're into it. My view is the problem with that argument is not that it it 
ignores individuals is that it wrongly characterizes how social structures generate interests, how social structures are impinging on the actions of rational, rationally motivated individuals. And that's a very cryptic way of saying it. I, I don't know if you want to go more deeply into that. No, let's, that, let's, 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 let's go, let's, let's go medium, medium, medium okay. deeply, maybe. Um, my view is that Cohen is right that um, rationally motivated individuals will uh, undertake to either uphold or to dissolve the production relations. Let's say you're in feudalism and uh, feudalism is pretty uh, economically stagnant. Um, so if it's economically stagnant, Cohen predicts, well, people are gonna overthrow those production relations and you'll get capitalism. And my criticism of that was that <laughs> it's like sort of the NRA argument. People don't make history, classes do. What that means right, is, right, right. yeah, a lot of peasants will find that it isn't doing them much good, but peasants don't have the power, lords do. And the lordly class was quite capable of doing very well for itself, even while the overall economic advancement of society was minimal to none. So you can have a quite stagnant feudalism, which it was for long periods of time, in which the power centers of society are actually doing quite well because whatever the level of productivity is, they have it, it's possible for them to keep extracting a decent surplus for themselves. And for them, the uh, switch to a new economic system like capitalism holds all sorts of dangers. They don't know if they'll be on top in the new system. They don't know if in the new system, they'll have the same kind of control over the productive classes as they do in, as they do in feudalism. So while it's sensible for peasants to not want feudalism, it's quite rational for lords to persist with it, even if the outcome is, as Cohen says, is on Cohen's theory, something that should be leading people to overthrow it. And the history of feudalism is it was economically stagnant for almost three centuries. Now, three centuries is a long time. And if it's economically stagnant for that, that period of time, you have to ask why. Well, perhaps the peasants liked it. Clearly they didn't. So then why were they stuck with it? It's because of the material realities of collective action. They could not come together collectively to overthrow it. And one reason they couldn't was that lords had all the resources they needed to suppress collective action. So it seems to me that what you need is a different kind of account of um, historical evolution. And in my view, the account has to rest much more on the exigencies of political struggle, political action, collective action, successful or unsuccessful, and not the functional requirements of the productive forces. Yeah, and that's going to be relevant, not just because it's like intellectually interested to think about how feudalism fell and we got capitalism, but to thinking about how, you know, inshallah, capitalism could fall and we could have socialism, uh, because uh, this this is something I've, I've seen you talk about before that uh, there's there's certain ways of thinking about Marxism that underestimate those collective action problems as they confront um, workers right now. It's it's not um, you know a a worker who doesn't you know join a union or engage in militant political activity is not necessarily being. You know, it's it's we don't have to go to like oh they're 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 a slave of ideological false consciousness. You know, there there could be lots of ways in which, at particular moments, those are perfectly rational decisions for them to make. Yeah. So I've just um, I have a book coming out in three months 
exactly on this subject, which is how, how, why is capitalism stable at all? It's a system that uh, grinds millions and millions of people into dust. It's a system that requires all sorts of infringements on people's autonomy, uh, on their welfare, et cetera. Why does it persist? There's a long tradition in Marxism that says it persists because of ideology, because workers drink the Kool-Aid. Uh, and if you want to get fancy, maybe you're a graduate student, you invoke Gramsci and you say, well, it has to do with hegemony. Hegemony is a fancy way of saying people drink the Kool-Aid. Um, so, and I, what you just said is the essence of not just me. I mean, I, I, I didn't invent this argument. I, I think it, it was percolating and uh, sort of circulating within um, the the new, the post new left in the, in the 80s and 90s. And I, I also think that it's very much there in Lenin and in some of the classical Marxists, but it's not articulated as such. The basic argument is the reason capitalism is stable is not because workers think it's a great system, but it's because uh, uh, it's really hard to organize. <laughs> yeah, you, if you take all the fancy traps, trapping out of it, it's the reason it's stable is because the dominant class has all the political and organizational means at its disposal when it needs to use it, which not the state and its guns, that's a very, very last resort, not coercion, but ordinary means to which it can break up unions, break up organizing efforts, ordinary means by which it can use the media to its uh, advantage. Workers, on the other hand, have to do, to do the all the arduous work of coming together in extremely difficult circumstances taking all the risks, undertaking all the, the sacrifices uh, to forge collective organizations which can be broken up far more easily than they can be crafted. Now, you, if you look at that for any Marxist, the fact that any Marxist ever deviated from this argument is amazing because what are we saying? Saying that capitalism distributes class capacities unequal. The class structure distributes the capacity for collective action in such a way that the class that most needs to undertake collective action, that is the working class, is the least able to do so. And the class that does not have to resort to collective action to defend its interests, which is the capitalist class, has the easiest time actually forging collective organizations. Now, why doesn't the capitalist class have to engage in collective action to defend the system? Because even if every capitalist sits back, doesn't talk to any other capitalists, just has his workers show up to work every day, he's getting everything he needs. All the burden is on the workers to then organize themselves to fight against their employer. The employer himself doesn't need to organize with other employers until the workers do. And until that point, he can spend whatever resources he has breaking up their organizing efforts. That's another way of, that's an elaborate way of saying class capacity, that capacity to organize yourself as a class is distributed unequally. Now, if it's distributed unequally, it simply follows deductively that except in very rare circumstances, the, st the system will be stable. Because the class that upholds the status quo has a greater capacity and the class that seeks to overturn the status quo has less of a capacity to do so. It's as simple as that. Uh, so that's consistent with what I just said about feudalism. That's consistent with Rome. And there is no other way to understand class struggle and class society. If it were the case that in a class system, 
the capacity for collective action were distributed equally, they wouldn't last five minutes. People would simply band together and overthrow their overlords. It, it's, so it's kind of shocking that Marxists have spent so much energy and so much expended so much hot air around all this stuff around ideology and culture as the foundation for stability when it never was. And Marx knew it, Lenin knew it. Uh, you, you don't see them having this cultural apparatus. And frankly, if anyone actually reads Gramsci's prison notebooks, it's all in there. My theory about Gramsci is nobody actually reads it. Fair enough. Well, uh, I will read that book when it comes out. Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, thank you so much, Vivek, uh, for your first of many appearances, I hope. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right. Uh, that was uh, Vec Chibber, uh, who is, among uh, many other things, editor of uh, Catalyst, uh, the uh, the author of uh, that uh, article that we we're talking about at the beginning in, uh, well, first in Tribune, but then in Jacobin, uh, conservatism is morally bankrupt. Uh, another one, uh, rescuing uh, class for the cultural turn, which uh, which we did not get to today, but I, I would like to in one of those future conversations. But uh, but that was really good. I was actually I was actually really I was really happy about uh, about that conversation, um, and, uh, and and I, that was that was exactly uh, what I was hoping for. Uh, again, think I think it's really really interesting, really direct. Uh, you know, kind of, uh, kind of thinker. Um, and uh, I did want to mention uh, before we go to uh, the preview for the patron episode, uh, see uh, Dave L in the chat says the Amber Frost rule, everybody's lying about how much they read, uh, which, uh, which is certainly true. Uh, but uh, in an effort to, you know, as a, as a service to help you have to lie less about how much you read. Uh, as I mentioned in the conversation with Vec, I am teaching a class at the uh, School for Social and Cultural Change uh, in October and November called Analytic Marxism and the Materialist Theory of History. We're gonna be reading uh, G.A. Cohen's book, uh, Karl Marx's Theory of History, or really the more I think about it, I think we're gonna be reading the first half of G.A. Cohen's book, the Karl Marx's Theory of History. So I don't want anybody to burn out. And you know, I wanna have like reasonable amounts that we can go over every week and kind of break down all of the arguments that Cohen makes so that you know, people, I know a lot of you watching this, listening to this, uh, have that book sitting on your shelf somewhere and you have not read it. Uh, whether you know whether you're confirming the uh, Amber Frost rule or not, so hey, you can actually read it, uh, and and I should say too that uh, that whether you you think um, that the kind you know what what Cohen is giving you in that book is like Marxist theory of history classic, uh, and. In other words, it's this like very orthodox version of the Marxist theory of history because he's he's trying to unpack exactly what uh, Marx means by some of these claims and being very careful about reconstructing uh, Marx's arguments. Uh, and I think uh, that that is, I think that it's a really useful thing to read whatever you think of less orthodox Marxist, you know, versions of the Marxist theory of history, like the one that you just heard Vivek articulate a little bit at the end, 
because I kind of think that you need to, I mean, there's lots in that book besides the sort of like, what's the relationship between the forces of production and the relations of production, but um, lots of other Marxist concepts, you know, he's, he's laying out, but also even in terms of those core questions about, you know, how is it that we moved from feudalism to capitalism and might move from capitalism to socialism? I think that before you you start saying, well, I think the kind of original straightforward version of the Marxist theory of history might not be quite right. Uh, and, you know, here's, uh, here's a, you know, here are the respects in which, you know, we should tinker with it, or, you know, here's the stuff that still makes sense. This part makes less sense. Uh, before you do any of that, like you got to at least understand uh, what the, uh, the original, uh, the original form of it looks like. And I think there's no better way of doing that than by going through Cohen's book, uh, because he is so, I mean, it's very densely packed, book, but he's, he's so clear. And, and I think he has, you know, whether you think, you know, whether you think it entirely fits all the evidence or not, at least it clarifies what the Marxist theory is enough that you can start asking those questions uh, about about evidence. Uh, so I, I think it's a tremendously uh, valuable uh, place uh, place to start. Uh, and of course, I also agree with what Ed Shea says in uh, in the chat. Reading is easy, thinking is hard. Or maybe you know, depending on what you're reading, reading might be a little hard, but thinking is harder. Uh, which is uh, which is certainly uh, certainly true. Uh, but you know, I, I think to do the the thinking, you know, you have to at least start with the reading, so you can you can think about what you read, uh, and and so what I really hope for out of that class is that, you know, and we get to um, both kind of break down, you know, it's going to be early Sunday afternoons EST because that's the best for people with time zones ranging from you know California to Poland or whatever, which. Uh, well, it wasn't Poland, it was Spain, but the previous class I took taught at SSCC. I think that is the range of time zones we have. So if you're in California, it's, you know, 10 in the morning, which is not too bad. And if you're in Spain, it's six at night or whatever. It's not too bad uh, when uh, when the, those sessions start uh, on uh, on Sundays. But what I'm really hoping out of them is, is that I can kind of start out with a lecture portion, kind of going through Cohen's argument and, you know, chapter we read that week. But also we can have like really open-ended class discussions uh, and, uh, and, you know, and, and take the opportunity to not just read, but to, uh, to think, you know, it's like, okay, I mean, is, does Cohen's argument make sense here? You know, does, uh, Marx's argument make sense? You know, there are places where even Cohen is disagreeing with Marx a little bit, you know, who do you think is right or neither of them right? And, you know, I, I think the more we have a plurality of points of view, the more interesting the class is going to be. So that would be my pitch. Again, that class is, uh, analytic Marxism, and the materialist theory of history. Uh, if you want to take that, that is sscc.teachable.com. So teachable, like, uh, you know, teach, able. Uh, so sscc.teachable.com. Uh, if you want to, if you want to sign up for that, uh, we are, uh, we are taking that, you know, we're doing, that's going to be in October, November, uh, starting the, the first class session, and if you want to do it asynchronously, you know, the Zoom, you know, the Zoom meetings are all recorded. But the first class session uh, is going to be the second Sunday of October uh, rather than this Sunday, uh, because uh, two reasons. One, this Sunday I'll be coming back from Arizona from uh, debating Charlie Kirk. Uh, and, uh, and two, you know, I don't know how much reading anybody's going to get time to, uh, to, to answer, to go through before then. 
Uh, so uh, we're also going to be talking about this next Monday uh, because uh, one of our very favorite guests, uh, Lillian uh, Sikertia, is uh, going to be back on the show. Uh, and she's also thought a lot about the exact issues that I was talking uh, with Vivek with at uh, at the end of that interview. So that should be a really fun discussion and a good way of setting up the class for anybody who is taking that. But... Um, <laughs> Silver Harlow says, what? You think people should understand an argument before they criticize it? What's next? Reading more than the title of articles? Well, it is 2021. I don't know if we could ask that last part. But um, in any case, uh, so in just a few minutes, uh, we are going to do the philosophy segment uh, with uh, my wife, Jennifer, a philosophy professor at uh, Georgia State University Perimeter College. Uh, and... Um, and then we'll go to the post game for the patrons. But meanwhile, I want to play uh, a little clip from the last patron exclusive episode. Uh, we had been doing these, um, and it made a little bit more sense when they were on Thursdays. Uh, we had been doing like a preview for the one that was going to come out in a few days. But since now we're doing the debate breakdowns on Thursdays, and uh, we're we're doing um, and the patron episodes are dropping on Saturdays. So that doesn't really make sense anymore. So uh, what we're doing is we'll we're showing little what you missed clips from uh, the uh, the patron episode from two days ago. So in this case, um, it is going to be my conversation uh, with the writer and, and academic philosopher uh, Oliver Trouty about uh, political epistemology. So it's a good it's a good lead in to uh, the philosophy segment. Uh, so let's watch that. You started out by saying that you know you were interested both in sort of very abstract kind of epistemology and epistemology questions that come up when we're thinking about uh, politics and political arguments and all of that. Uh, and my like possibly cranky old managed perception is that. Uh, sometime in the last several years, the boundary between those things has changed in a really weird way. Like, I, I mean, I mean, I guess, I guess that's a place to, to start. Like, is, yeah. Is, yeah. Is that your perception? Yeah. So um, yeah, the boundary between the traditional epistemology and the social epistemology, things like that. So yeah. So one example of this that I think we talked about once is, um, there are these debates uh, in traditional epistemology about things like uh, skepticism. Should we be skeptical because we might be dreaming? Mm -hmm. um, should we doubt ourselves because you know things would seem the same if we were a brain connected to some sort of machine in a vat that generated our experiences through, you know, there's little I forget what they're called now, but the little circular things that you know are connected to things in movies. Um, yes, yeah, so and. Uh, it's disembodied brain. Yeah, exactly. Subject to complex electrochemical simulation to make you think yeah. you have a body and you're walking yeah. around people. Or right. you could be in a Descartes, what they call the demon world. Mm -hmm. Descartes uh, worried that an evil demon was tricking him into believing the things that he believes based on his perceptions, but that his per perceptions weren't veridical, right? Um, so one example is that... Uh, so it, it used to be that the, the social and political stuff was largely confined to saying, well, 
there's that traditional stuff, stuff like that. And then there's, should we trust what people say to us um, in testimony? What should we do when we disagree with people? What should we do when we disagree with a bunch of people? What should we do when a bunch of people disagree with a bunch of people and things like that, right? Um, and increasingly there's an interest in saying maybe the, the former set of questions are also political. And some, one example of that is, um, so you, you might think that there's an analogy between being tricked by an evil demon on the one hand and being not tricked by an evil demon on the one, other hand, that pair of cases, and being born into and raised by a Nazi family on the one hand and being born into and raised by a progressive family that has the same values. i sorry, not the same values, um, but has the correct values, right? That is a, a good family, let's say, that raises you well to believe all the right things about morality and the world. So um, they, on the other hand, if you're raised in the Nazi family, you're like the moral or political equivalent of a brain in the vat. You know, you have the exactly. All right. Uh, so that was the preview of the conversation with Oliver Trouty about uh, political epistemology uh, that uh, is, you know, patrons got that a couple days ago, just as a quick reminder. Uh, if you um, if you subscribe to the Patreon, that is $5 a month, uh, and you get that extra episode every single week dropping on Saturdays. You get the Patreon-exclusive postgame on Monday nights. Uh, you, you get um, uh, the monthly Sopranos recaps with uh, Nando and Waz and Mike Racine. Uh, and uh, you get you get many other things. You just get gifts sh showered upon you, and most importantly, you get my appreciation uh, because uh, you know primarily, of course, it's it's a way of you know expressing support if you like what we're doing here and, and you want it to continue. Meanwhile, I am now joined uh, by well, Dr. Burgess. Yeah, by Dr. Burgess, <laughs> by the uh, the other Dr. Burgess, Jennifer Burgess. Um. So uh, we it is time for uh, the end of episode philosophy segment. You know, I've been talking for uh, for a good hour and a half about politics. So uh, have we come up with a name for this yet? Uh, the, the super duper awesome philosophy with Dr. Jen and Ben. Yeah, super awesome philosophy with Dr. Jen. Sure, sure. That <laughs> let's do that. We'll have we'll have Andy make a graphic that says that. I uh, believe that was Ryan Lake's suggestion, so I think we should go with that. <laughs> sure, sure. We'll do the we'll do the Ryan suggestion. Um, so, uh, in any case, <laughs> doctor. <laughs> um. In any case, uh, we will. Um, what we wanted to circle back to for this uh, was actually that article that I talked about at the very beginning. Because uh, the, see how it all comes. I know, together. right? It's 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 like a little uh, <laughs> burrito or something. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, you wrap it around and it comes together. Can you tell Ben had Taco Bell for dinner? <laughs> I did. We were in a hurry. Uh, you know, had to get ready for the show. And uh, right around the corner from us, there's like a combined KFC Taco Bell. Uh, so uh, so Jen got the food of her people at KFC. And, the uh, food of my people. You know, biscuits and stuff. You know? Yeah, no chicken. No chicken, just sides. Oh. 
and uh and i got uh taco, taco bell. bell um you know some real gourmet food there so um so in any case yeah it's like uh it's like a burrito or a nachos bel grande or you know something like that no burrito makes sense uh it does it now <laughs> yeah it wraps around it comes together <laughs> hey jay andrew uh, so, um, in any case, uh, at the beginning of the show, we were talking about that article that I'd written about the Senate parliamentarian for Jacobin. Uh, it's really not that hard, just ignore the Senate parliamentarian. And there was a point where, as an analogy, I talked about Harry Frankfurt. Uh, so this, um, you know, the, the way it ties into the Senate parliamentarian, you know, you could go read the article uh, after uh, after you're done. Uh, but in that particular, let's get the graphic back up again. Uh, so in, uh, in that particular passage, uh, here's what I say. The great 20th century philosopher Harry Frankfurt has a classic example to test our intuitions about free will and determinism. If there's only one possible thing that will happen, does that mean we aren't responsible for our actions? Frankfurt asks us to imagine that a man named Jones is preparing to make a decision. A villain named Black is prepared to intervene to manipulate Jones into doing what Black wants him to do. Perhaps he'll hypnotize Jones. Perhaps he'll use some science fiction device that will alter the chemistry in Jones's brain. Depending on how you fill out the details, you get one of many variations of what philosophers call Frankfurt cases. Brain chip. <laughs> Pretty sure this is the first time the phrase Frankfurt cases has appeared in Jacobin. Uh, brain chip. <laughs> yeah, maybe he puts a chip in his brain uh, that he could activate to take over Jones' brain if he needs to. But here's the twist. Ooh, a twist. Black will only intervene. <clears throat> excuse me. Black will only intervene if he doesn't think Jones will do what Black wants him to do on his own. So if Black intervenes and somehow makes Jones do what Black wants him to do, we'd all agree that this would be Jones's uh, would not would be. not be Jones's fault, right? We'd all agree this would not be Jones's fault. It would be Black's fault. Yes, wouldn't be Jones's. But that's fault. not the issue at hand. But if Jones does what Black wants him to do because it's also what Jones wants to do, in that case, Frankfurt thinks it's clearly Jones's fault. Yes. Yeah, so Jones is considering whether or not he should kill Smith, and. Um, so Black has 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 got this. Uh, <laughs> um, where was I going with this? Black has implanted this brain chip where Jones, if Jones doesn't kill Smith, you know, Black's going to push the button and Jones will then kill Smith. But if Jones just kills Smith on his own and Black is uh, how Frankfurt says lurking in the background, but he never has to be involved then we do think that that's Jones's fault. Yeah, so if Jones says, I had no choice, Black would have made me do it anyway, Frankfurt thinks no one should be impressed by this excuse. I'm not impressed. Are you impressed, Ben? Nope. No. Nope, I am unimpressed. <laughs> uh, so the fact that Black hypothetically would have forced him if he hadn't wanted to do it doesn't matter. Jones is at fault. So that's that's the passage. Right. Uh, that's the passage from uh, from from the article. Uh, and so the idea is that Jones was going to kill Smith no matter what. There was nothing else that could happen other than Jones killing Smith. 
but we don't think that just that fact automatically removes any sort of <laughs> any sort of moral responsibility from Jones. Yeah. Uh, so I think that uh, <laughs> Jay Hutch talks too much, says I think that is secretly impressed. Uh, so um, it's worth taking a step back. And actually the conversation with Vivek ended up being even more relevant uh, to this than, uh, than, than I would have hoped because he spent so much time talking about individual agency and it's not just that a structure is just somehow forcing somebody to do something, but that, you know, that they're making decisions, you know, on their own. And so the fancy um, way of thinking about this is whether free will is compatible with determinism. And that's, and that's where Frankfurt is ultimately going. He doesn't quite spell it out in the essay, but that's where he's ultimately going. So, uh, Dr. Burgess. Yes. Uh, what is determinism? What does that mean in this context? Uh, determinism is the idea that everything that happens is caused by the things that happened previously. So Z is caused by Y and Y is caused by X and so on and so on. So that if you were to uh, place yourself somehow at the beginning of time and you knew all the rules of the universe, you could predict everything going forward because things could only go one way. Given the state of the universe and the laws of the universe, there's only one way that things can play out. Yeah, and, and so, you know, the idea is that if you think about, like, if you ever took a physics class where there were word problems, like not, you know, I mean, just like a basic, like high school kind of physics class. And, you know, you have a... If you were lucky enough to have physics classes in your high school, which I was not. <laughs> sure. But if you were, or if you took it as a college, you know, sophomore or something, then... Um, and, you know, they'd have these word problems like that baseball is going at such and such, you know, miles an hour. And the, is this like the train? This train is leaving Boston and this train is leaving yeah, Los Angeles. When will they collide? Yeah. Kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, that kind of thing. And so uh, and you have all these things about force and mass and acceleration. And the idea is if you know the initial conditions and, you know, you can plug them into your uh, equations and then you can just pop out what's going to happen. There will be one spot and only one spot where the two trains will collide. And uh, it's, it's fun, too, to introduce in terms of this because it sort of sounds like there's a tie into the trolley problem, you know, they're colliding trains. But uh, <laughs> in any case, um, so determinism is just the claim that, you know, the more we learn about science, the more it seems like more things work like this uh that you know that it's 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 never that you know there's like less and less that we can explain in terms of deterministic chains of cause and effect it's always there's more and more and there's some reason to think well maybe this is you know just true of everything all the time and what's going on in human brains when a person makes a decision is not a special magical exception it these. is that the brain is a physical thing, just like those two trains are. Uh, yeah. So the um, no. <laughs> so um, 
and even if you know, even if you think, okay, maybe you know, know a little bit about quantum physics, and there are some interpretations of quantum physics where you get down to the level of itty bitty smaller than atom, you know, subatomic particles. Uh, it's not entirely deterministic. The laws that govern their behavior are just probabilistic, but it's not clear that that's going to help much no. or, or be very different, you know, for, no. for our, our purposes. Cause you know, it's not clear that that's going to filter up to the level of like human decisions and human actions. No. And even if it did, that uh, has its own problems. So just assuming determinism though, for the sake of simplicity, that's what we're Let's worried. do that. seems like a good plan. <laughs> so <laughs> then uh, the question that philosophers are going to argue about isn't, uh, is determinism true or not? Because that's a job for the physicist. That's not my problem. Uh, it's that's their problem. <laughs> it's going to be, uh, if determinism is true, does that mean that we don't really have free will? And to kind of see how the Frankfurt argument is supposed to tie into this, we can um, think about a, a really... I think one of the most obvious arguments you could make for saying no, if determinism is true, we cannot have free will. They are incompatible. So this argument uh, goes like this. Uh, J. Andrew World made some snazzy graphics uh, to, uh, to illustrate it. Premise one, if determinism is true, we aren't free to do otherwise. So what, what does that mean? It's like the, the trains. If everything is following along, with the laws of nature, the the trains cannot collide in in Kansas City if they are destined, let's say, to collide in um, what's another city? Ben? Las Vegas. Those are the two cities. <laughs> Those are the two possible cities. No, that only one thing is possible to happen, and that if we are just you know physical beings like that, then. The, the same laws of nature act on us and only one thing will happen. There's only going to be one course of events. So if there's only one decision that you could have made, the same way that the trains could only collide and Kansas City was the one they are going to collide in? Yes. Okay. Not Las Vegas. So they, the, the trains can't collide in Las Vegas. The trains are <laughs> going to collide in Kansas City. <laughs> they're not free to do otherwise. Yeah. They're not free to collide somewhere other than Kansas City. That that's that's, right. there's only one possibility. And similarly, if, uh, you know, the idea would be if determinism is true, we aren't free to, um, you know, the, the, I don't know, the, uh, the synapses in our brain can't collide somewhere else than the nope. decision that, that we make. So we're not, we're not free in the sense that we could do something else. That's right. Your synapses are going to collide in Kansas City and there's nothing else that could possibly happen. And some people who say, yes, uh, even if determinism is true, we, we, we can still have free will, have tried to fight this point and say, no, 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 if we define free to do otherwise just the right way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if we can get these, these definitions you know, set up just the way we want them, then we can get the conclusion that we want. And... Even a lot of people who are sympathetic to some form of compatibilism, the idea that there's some sense in which free will and determinism are compatible, 
have kind of decided over the decades that this maybe isn't the way to go. That like you, you just kind of gotta accept premise one. You must accept it. This uh, is something my mother-in-law likes to say. You must accept it. <laughs> that makes Shout her, out, Kathy. That makes her sound so bad. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, she didn't say that about either of us, but she said that in another context. That someone must accept it. Yes, and now she likes to just say it in general. And now she does say it to us. You must accept it. You must it. accept it. Yeah. Uh, so... That's the first premise of this argument, free will and determinism aren't compatible. Second premise, premise two, uh, if we aren't free to do otherwise, we aren't in control of our actions in the right way to be morally responsible for those actions. So intuitively, it only makes sense to say that something's your fault if you could have done something different. Right. If, uh, if someone hypnotizes you to, to, uh, to shoot someone then once you do shoot someone, you can, well, I wasn't free to do otherwise. And it doesn't seem like you're responsible for that because it wasn't your choice. You were constrained in a way where that was the only thing you could do. So putting these two premises together, remember the first one was if determinism is true, we aren't free to do otherwise. Second one is if we aren't free to do otherwise, we aren't control of our, in control of our actions, the right way to be morally responsible for those actions. We end up at the conclusion, if determinism is true, we aren't in control of our actions in the right way to be morally responsible for those actions. So that was an excellent argument, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is the argument that Frankfurt's responding to. And yes. anytime you see an argument for a conclusion that you're not sure whether you accept or not, there are at least two questions you should ask yourself about that argument. So one of them is, does the conclusion follow from the premises? Um, there was a guy named Ed Irwin, uh, who was a uh, professor uh, when we went to grad school, uh, as, a, um, you know, as an older gentleman, you know, uh, kind of intense. He and, was an old guy. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, sort of a uh, little, you know, little, little tint of... Uh, of New York and his syllables. Uh, and so it was very memorable the way he would say, you know, as I heard him say many times, that doesn't follow, you know, <laughs> like some premises could be true without the conclusion being true. That doesn't follow. I think I remember uh, joking once, you know, be the, should be the title of his memoirs, you know, that doesn't follow the Ed Irwin story. Uh, so um, in any case, so the first question is, does the conclusion follow from the premises? So does it? It seems to. Yeah, sure does, right? Because the, I mean, that's saying if A is true, B is true. If B is true, C is true. So if A is true, C is true. That's, you know. That's what we call a hypothetical syllogism. Nice. So you're <laughs> learning some fancy terminology here. I like it. Uh, we just teach all sorts of things. So, uh, so then the second question is, are the premises true? And so if like Frankfurt, you don't think the conclusion is true and you acknowledge that if the premises are true, the conclusion must be true. You have to find a way to make one, at least one of those premises false. Yeah. Um, so he could try to say, well, if we define free to do otherwise in just the right way, you know, we can, we can see a way in yeah, which, yeah, you this know, this is the, the compatibilist way, you know, if we, if we, uh, you know, if, if we, what is the word I'm looking for? Uh, you know, 
if we do this to these, <laughs> if we like fiddle, if we or massage <laughs> these definitions enough, we can we can fit them into my personal argument. Yeah. So so this is classical compatibilism. Classical compatibilism says uh, that. You know, if we if we think hard enough about what it means, say that we're free to you know that we're free to do otherwise, we can see that actually premise one isn't right. Now, um, all joking aside, I'm slightly less unsympathetic than Jen is to uh, to that classical. <laughs> well, if you think hard enough, just means if you think about it until you come to my way of thinking, until you come to my viewpoint, and if you haven't, you just haven't thought hard enough about it yet. That's what that means. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so, so again, I, I, I think, um, I think that there might be a more charitable way to understand this, but um, yeah, we've only got so much time. This is YouTube. Let's let's just uh, let's just be uncharitable for a minute. We did do a philosophy Friday on this. Oh, uh, Ryan Lake. We did. We did. There, so there is that floating around on the internet somewhere. Yeah. So if it's before the ones that were lost, uh, you can uh, you can go. That was a long time ago. Yeah. So it probably is before the ones that were lost. So uh, so you could you could actually there is a video of uh, of me and Jen arguing about this exact point with Ryan. Yes, with Ryan. Um, but uh, let's let's just assume for the sake of argument uh, that. Uh, Jen and Harry Frankfurt are right, uh, and this is not a promising way to go. Uh, so, um, so then his only remaining options are to accept the conclusion, which spoiler he does not do, or to do what? To do what, Ben? <laughs> Can I just toss start massaging definitions? No, no. So massaging definitions would presumably be the reject premise one option, but he's what Frankfurt's going to do is reject premise two. He's Frankfurt. Yeah, that's so much more boring. Frankfurt's going to say there's we could make even though maybe normally they line up, uh, actually being free in the sense of being free to do otherwise that I did this, but I could have done that. Uh, maybe actually that's just a different thing one that like usually lines up but doesn't have to. Uh, that's just a different thing than being free in the sense that you're in control of your actions so that if you do something bad, it's your fault. So if you do something good, you know, you deserve uh, you deserve credit for it. And he thinks that there's there's a way that uh, that those um, that those come apart. and his way of showing that he thinks those come apart is exactly that passage that we we all love Ryanley. Uh, that we uh, that we started with. Um, so um, Ryan is going to be back on the show. I'm trying to remember sometime in October. Uh, Ryan got his booster shot to yesterday. Yeah. So yay, Ryan. Yeah, Ryan is, is is triple vaccinated. He's he's much stronger than us double vaccinated people <laughs> uh, at this point. You know, he's he's like a daywalker in Blade. You know, the vampire could walk out of the sunshine. You know, all the other vampires have to stay inside. That's you one know. way to look at it. You know, he he could he could just you know triple vaccinated. He can he can lick <laughs> doorknobs. You know, what? he can you know like like without worrying about getting COVID. You know, well. he, can, <laughs> he can uh he can do he can do whatever. He's he's he's. That might not be the only reason to not he's, lick uh, doorknobs. He's ascended to you know to a different level. Uh, he watches. This. <laughs> but uh, and um, 
yeah, Dara says uh, we're only free because we can't know the future. I think everybody in this discussion would agree that that wouldn't be enough to count as freedom. Like, in other words, if if you're not really in control of your actions, but you think you are, then you know maybe that's more pleasant for you psychologically. But that's not that's not freedom. I mean, if if a if go back to the brain chip uh, that if there was the chip in your brain that controlled your actions, but you know, you didn't know that the chip was there. Perhaps the first thing the chip does is it wipes out your memory of finding out that uh, you had brain surgery. So uh, you didn't know, you don't know the chip is there. So your actions are, you know, so the mad scientist is pressing buttons, you know, uh, to, you know, now, uh, now Ben will decide to, uh, you know, to, to have, uh, to have another sip of beer. And I think, oh, I just made a free decision. Well, I don't know that it's unfree, but that's not enough. Like, that's not enough to make it objectively unfree, objectively free. And and Frankfurt wants to say, no, at least in that second sense, that you're in control enough for it to be your fault. At least in that second sense, we could be objectively free, even if determinism is true. Well, how does he do this? By saying, look at these cases about Jones and Black, where... Uh, Black would intervene. He would, you know, press the button to activate the brain chip or whatever, uh, if he, uh, if he thought he had to, if he thought that Jones wasn't just going to do. He doesn't want to get involved if he doesn't have to. He would prefer that Jones uh, do it on his own if he, uh, if if he. Well, um, this is also distracting. Uh, he, he would prefer to do it. He would prefer that Jones do it on his own. and But if he has to step in, he will. Yeah. So if, um, you know, so if it looks, you know, if, if he's just trying to get Jones to, you know, there's like, I don't know, mash it together with the trolley problem. You know, Jones is trying to decide whether to pull the lever. And uh, if, uh, if, if, if it looks like he's going to pull the lever on his own, Black won't press the button because he has no reason to. Uh, but if it looks like um, if it looks like Jones is a Kantian and he's not going to pull the lever, uh, you know he thinks that would be wrong to sacrifice some people for others. Then um, you were throwing together so many philosophical <laughs> philosophical concepts right now. Yeah, see, it's like all the ingredients in the nachos bel grande. So hot. <laughs> So anyway, uh, <laughs> ignoring that, uh, that's uh, the. But if it looks like Jones isn't going to pull the lever on his own, Black will push the button. Well, in the scenario where Black didn't have to push the button, where the only the fact that Jones had this chip that could have been activated played no role whatsoever in the chain of cause and effect that led to Jones pulling the lever, then once Jones is, you know, since the way this would play out in the real world, you know, Jones is eventually going to go on trial for, you know, for killing that guy with the trolley. Uh, so uh, if, if his defense attorneys uh, <laughs> trot out uh, the, uh, oh, well, actually there was this chip in his head and see there was this guy black. So you see, uh, even if Jones had wanted to pull the lever, he would have ended up doing it anyway. Um, Frankfurt thinks the jury is going to be very unimpressed by that because very unimpressed. 
because Jones didn't do it because of the chip. Jones did it because Jones wanted to do it. Yeah, they could bring Black up there. Black, did you push the button? Nope. <laughs> well, Black's kind of irrelevant now, isn't he? Yeah. So just because Jones was going to pull that lever, there was no way around Jones pulling that lever, I still think that uh, that he carries responsibility for that. Now, is this a completely convincing argument? Uh, you can watch that live stream from a while back with us and uh, the uh, extremely powerful triple vax Ryan Lake. Uh, to Somebody said I got very heated with Ryan <laughs> And watch us all have a big heated discussion about um, whether those two premises are true, whether whether it does actually make sense to say that we can have free will, even if physical determinism is true. Uh, opinions differed, uh, but uh, but that is Frankfurt's uh, that is Frankfurt's argument. So a little um, a little uh, a little philosophy. Uh, little philosophy chaser after the shot of politics that you got earlier. Uh, Here's a reminder. Just because you don't like the conclusion doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the argument. There you go. Uh, we'll, uh, once we get merch, we'll, we'll put that in the t-shirts. <laughs> so uh, we are going to go uh, to the post game. For yes. Ryan was in his car for that episode. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. He was, he had to join us late. And he was in a parking lot and he was in his car and it got dark. <laughs> yeah, which was particularly funny because it was getting darker and darker as the episode went on. You know, so eventually he looks like Colonel Kurtz at the end of Apocalypse Now, just shrouded in shadows, you know. <laughs> Are you an assassin? <laughs> so um, classic. Also, it's good because it's like the normally doing YouTube from your car is, you know, usually something people do when they're like, I don't know. Like there, there were a bunch of. I remember there were a bunch of videos several years ago where it's like, you know, angry white guys in trucks ranting about Obama and stuff from you know from their from the driver's seat. Uh, it's usually not a philosophy professor arguing about free will. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you know, during the pandemic on the sports shows that I watch, like uh, Colin Cowherd, people would be doing. He, he couldn't have people in studio, so he would be interviewing people. And a lot of them, you could see, were sitting in their cars doing it on, on their phone. And they were like, it's a pandemic. My kids are not in school. I got to get away from my kids. This gives me a little time away from my kids to do this in the car. Fair enough. So there is that. Yeah. Uh, there are indeed lots of further questions you could ask, like Darius is very good question. Well, we, ha we haven't just... You know, solved it. So I thought we had that last half an hour didn't just put to bed forever. <laughs> uh, the issue of free will and determinism, like, man, if only everybody from like St. Augustine to uh, to to, to uh, Harry Frankfurt, who's worried about free will, could have just watched that, then you know, that they would never have to worry about it again. Uh, so Darius uh, says, but where does the want come from? Is that a real choice? Very good question. We got into that quite a bit of that live stream. So uh, check that out. And we'll doubtless talk more about this stuff in the future. Uh, but meanwhile, we are going to go to the post game uh, for uh, for patrons. Uh, we are going to watch and talk about some Charlie Kirk clips. Uh, watch and uh, and talk about some... Uh, ben is going to wipe the floor with this dude. <laughs> well, um Here's hoping. Uh, <laughs> so, 
<laughs> appreciate the vote of confidence, babe. But uh, in any case, uh, so uh, Just doctor, <laughs> <laughs> doctor, babe. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> uh, yes, I agree, Jay Hutch. This was a real fry supreme of an episode. <laughs> so, uh, so we are going to go to the uh, go to the post game. I'm going to subject uh, Jake and Andy to some Charlie Kirk and Tucker Carlson because I'm sadistic that way, uh, and we are going to break it all down and uh, debunk it uh, in that fine uh, TMBS and after tradition. So um, good stuff coming up. Check that out. Patrons should already have the email. If you didn't get the email, just go to pay the Patreon. If you are not yet a patron. I don't know why not, but uh, that's uh, patreon.com slash Ben Burgess. Uh, so you can uh, you can join us for, for that. Always a good time. I uh, could be back next week with Lillian uh, Sikertia. And also, of course, to talk about whatever may have happened over the weekend at the Charlie Kirk debate. So left is best. Team Snoopy forever. I didn't do that. <laughs>